As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in them. And turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me once again in God's word to the book of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, if you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series in the evening through the Song of Solomon and considering its wisdom for how to love. And we've come to chapter 6, verse 13. You'll find that on page 718 of many of our pew Bibles. The Song of Solomon is between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And so we want to think about verses uh, 13 of chapter 6 through verse 4 of chapter 8. Uh, so we'll be considering a, a long portion, but this holds all together in the book. And so we're going to begin our reading at Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 13. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we might look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the glare of Bathrabim, by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like, cl- like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vineyards have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved." Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, 
as we've been considering wisdom for how to love, we've seen this relationship between the two of them uh, go through a number of ebbs and flows throughout the book. Um, and it's a, been a reminder to us that part of the reason we need wisdom for how to love is because love has been so affected by the fall. Um, one of the first institutional casualties of the fall of man in the garden was marriage. Um, marriage is the institution that went wrong. Um, it's part of bound up with the fall how the marriage relationship went wrong. Adam stood silently by while his wife was tempted by the serpent. Adam took the fruit himself and ate as his wife had done. He did not lead, but he followed her. He failed to lead her in love and followed her into sin. She failed to be the helper to her husband and actually helped to entangle him in the sin. And we see how the marriage relationship was corrupted by the fall in the way when the Lord confronts them in their sin, they turn on one another. Um, What does Adam say when the Lord confronts him? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Um, He tries to say this is really her fault. Um, And by saying that, God is really saying, actually, this is your fault because you gave her to me in the first place. She was supposed to be a helper and look what she's done. Um, It shows that he grudgingly takes, you know, says I did eat, so he gets around to a kind of confession a little late. Um, But you see how he both throws his wife under the bus and throws God under the bus. Um, And so we see how the institution of marriage suffers right at the beginning. Uh, The curse of the fall even touches on the marriage relationship. Uh, God says a part of the curse will be to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Um, And if we really want to understand the nature of that last statement, I think we can look forward to the conversation that God has with Cain in chapter 4 when Cain is angry that his sacrifice has not been accepted by God. And what does God say to him? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There again, we have another mention of that, that mastering desire um, that, that God talked about with the wife in chapter 3, he talks about with Cain in chapter 4. It's instructive that this is sort of how the fall has affected our natural relationships. I like how the Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner put it in thinking about that statement. He says, this desire being disordered portrays a marriage relation in which control has slipped from the fully personal realm to that of instinctive urges, passive and active. To love and cherish becomes to desire and dominate. And while even pagan marriage can rise far above this, the pull of sin is always toward it. Isn't that an insightful comment? That what God designed as love and cherish devolves into desire and dominate, and that the pull of sin is always towards that, even in the best of marriage relationships. There's always that danger 
that what God has designed to be a holy cooperation in marriage becomes an unholy competition where we're working to see whose desires win out and who will dominate. Right? Will my desires dominate or will his? Do I have the upper hand or does she? And if desiring and dominating become the controlling attitudes, replacing loving and cherishing, then we see how marriage gets to be a far cry from the kind of thing described in Genesis chapter 2, when the man before the fall said of his wife, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There's all sorts of tragedies in the garden, but one of the tragedies is what the fall does to marriage. Uh, what it does to a relationship that is supposed to be so close and so unified and become so divisive and difficult. Um, and the, that means that the good news in the garden is not just personal good news that God will raise up a son of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, the one who will bring victory. It's not just hope for individuals, it's also hope for the covenants that are broken. It's also hope for the relationships and the institutions that are broken, that this one will come who will bring restoration. And one of the beautiful things about the Lord's salvation, if we think about it, as Jesus Christ comes into the world, he does not dominate and force his own will on the world. The Son of Man does not come into the world to dominate to make his desires law and force people into service. What does he come to do? Not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. And why does he do that for his bride, the church? Because he loves and cherishes her. It's a mark of the love of our Lord that he comes into the world to reform and restore our love for him so that by the working of his Holy Spirit, we can love and cherish our God as we ought to. And by pouring out his Spirit on us with the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can hope for the reordering of disordered lives, even ourselves, in our families, and in our marriages. And we're given a beautiful picture in this text of love that has and desire being reordered and restored. Um, we've been going through a passage that was particularly dealing with sort of imaginative problems that were problems of perception, problems of, of sort of a dream life, but projected into the marriage relationship maybe as an articulation of the fears that exist there. And here what we have is really an end to these imaginative dreams these flights of fancy about their relationship that have exposed these dark and ominous fears. And with these issues resolved, we see really renewed and increasing appreciation and desire coming to fruition in their marriage. It really is a beautiful picture of how much they love and desire one another. Um, and I think I've shared with you before that my grandmother lived with my parents for many years and Whenever any kind of show on TV, even if the characters just kissed, kissed passionately, you could count on my grandmother to say, oh my. 
Um, and it's become kind of a family joke that anytime something remotely passionate comes on a TV show or movie, someone will say, oh my, in honor of grandma. Um, and I say that because there are a lot of oh my moments in this passage. It's not very veiled about what they're talking about, but it is a wonderful and beautiful expression of their desire for one another and the rightness of that desire in the marriage relationship. And so we really, in this passage, see the renewed appreciation of beauty, a rekindling of mutual attraction, and the realization of mutual desire. That's what we see going on in this passage. There's a renewed appreciation of beauty. For the third time, the husband offers a description of his wife, a description of her beauty to him, a description of her desirability. And we've seen him do this before. He, he described her and many parts of her in chapter 4. He did that again in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And there could be a temptation for us to just say, well, here we go again, right? Those of us who don't appreciate poetry, if there's too much repetition, we might start saying to ourselves, okay, we, we get it. Like, we, we get it. Um, but sometimes part of the problem is poetry requires close attention to what's happening so that we pick up the subtleties of what's happening. Because there are important differences between what he's said in describing her before and what he says in describing her now. Uh, one of the unique features of what he says in our passage is where he begins to describe her. He begins at her feet and works his way up to her face and her head. The other descriptions have been in the opposite direction. Um, He's begun with the top of her head and worked his way down. That's the usual way that you see in ancient Near Eastern love poetry descriptions being done. They tend to be top-down descriptions. This is the opposite way around. It's from her feet up to her head. And it's intentionally done, I think, to make us ask why this reversal. Um, and also, this, is, this description is far more, we could say, explicitly erotic than the descriptions that have come before. Um, chapter 4 was a little more reserved. They were on their wedding day. He was describing her and, and from the head down but stopped at her breasts. Uh, chapter 6 was limited to a consideration of her head and face. Uh, This description is complete. It's from head to toe, or more properly, from feet to head. And so why these differences? Why the increased description of who she is? Why the description in this this direction? Because even though it's much more about his physical desires for her and their physical intimacy with one another, it still makes his description such that the focal point of what he's describing is her head is her face, the top of who she is, where her real beauty and desirability finds its full focus for him. Um, That's, the I think, part of the reason there is this reversal so that he can end this description of who she is with her face and her head. It's the focal point of his attraction. Who she is, her mind, what she says, that's where his attraction is is really focused and finds its final expression. He's doing this, by doing this, he's saying, that is to me your crowning feature. Um, A person's face and head, as one commentator said, are more than anything else, physically presents a person's individuality. 
And so he's highlighting her individuality and her individual power to hold him captive. I think the focal point by describing her toe to head focuses then on the the most obvious part of her individuality for him, which is not her body, but her face. Also, by describing her from the foot up, what it tends to do then is give the impression of her being high and lofty in his sight and standing over her. As if what he's doing is describing, first of all, what's right before his eyes, and then looking up at something that is glorious in his sight. Now, this doesn't mean that he's in love with a 50-foot-tall woman or something, but it gives the poetic expression that in his mind, in his love for her, in his appreciation for her, she stands so tall in his affections that it's as if looking at her feet is at what's at eye level, and then he just begins to look up and describe the awesome beauty of what he sees. It gives her the impression of being something high and exalted, high and exalted in his mind, Um, and naturally flowing from his expressions of the last chapter, it's a way of expressing that she is utterly unique and utterly irreplaceable to him, that as she stands before him like this, she's almost scary in her loftiness. And as he describes her, we we can see that he's trying to describe a, a, a perfect whole, Um, A perfect whole person, a a, a picture of perfection before him. And he does that by really describing ten aspects of her. And we know that sometimes in the Bible, ten is a number that that speaks of completion. Um, And that's so his descriptors of her are from the feet up and ten of them so that it gives her a kind of perfect description as if she is a perfect and complete masterpiece of God to him. And so he begins with the description of her lower body. First, that her feet are lovely in sandals. You can think of a culture where most people went barefoot. You can imagine poor people's feet were pretty beat up from working and for walking. So if your feet didn't look that way, it was probably because you were a rich and noble person who could afford sandals to wear. So by saying her feet are lovely in sandals, he's describing both her beauty and a sense of wealth. And then he moves up, her thighs, her navel, her belly, her breasts, all descriptions of her that are round in shape and curving. Again, it's not hard to read this passage and understand what the poet is talking about here related to physical intimacy and fertility, imagery for the enjoyment that husband and wife find in each other. All those kinds of descriptions, special wine, special mixed wine lacking nothing, a heap of wheat, So picturing healthy skin tone, attractive shape, surrounded by lilies, description of her lips and her breasts. In earlier passages have been pictures of sensuality and beauty. Uh, Without, you know, getting so into the imagery that we defeat the purpose of all of these things being described poetically, one commentator said, images of fertility and sexual enjoyment overlap and overflow in these descriptions. And it's a reminder to us that appreciation of physical beauty and of um, sexual attraction is right and proper in the context of marriage. It's not something that needs to be ashamed of. It's a proper part of how God has created marriage. But his description is not limited to that. That's not all the description is about. He continues going up 
to the neck and to the eyes and to the nose and to the hair and to the head. Right? Beauty and desire for him is beyond just the physical attraction that he feels for his wife. There's beauty in her bearing. She has a neck that's held upright like an ivory tower. She has a nose like the Tower of Lebanon, held high, scorning all danger. Her head is like caramel, not caramel candy, kids, Mount Carmel, uh, which was a mountain. It was a high place. Again, it's a picture of loftiness and, um, and beauty. There's, there's not just beauty in her bearing, but there's depth to her. Right? Her eyes are like pools, clear and shining. There's value. Her flowing hair, her unbound hair is like purple. Purple is an expensive dye, speaking of the priceless appearance of her hair. Not that she was a punk rocker with purple hair, but again, it's his way of describing something that would have been expensive and beautiful, um, something that they wouldn't have a lot of normally. So what, what is he doing here? Her bearing, her depth, her value... And all of this together in his eyes makes her awesome. It's, it's captured when, she, when he says, you know, you could hold a king in the tresses of your hair. Your beauty and your bearing are an attractive force, powerful to enfold and entangle. And that's why he says it's no wonder that everyone stops to take her in like dancers. Uh, 6.13, um, at the beginning we read... Return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Um, That why is maybe better translated how. How you look intently watching as if you're watching dancers. And no wonder you look at her. She's awesome in her beauty, in her bearing, the value of her. Um, That's what he really is communicating. And he ends with this just sort of general appraisal of her beauty and desirability in verse 6 of chapter 7. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. This is how he feels. It echoes her description of him in chapter 116. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And this rekindles mutual attraction in them. This glorious description of her rekindles this mutual attraction between them. He doesn't stop with a mere appreciation of her beauty. He moves on to his desire to experience it with all of his senses. Right? Your stature is like a palm tree in verse 7. And all of those expressions that follow is his desire to not just appreciate the beauty with his eyes, uh, but with all of his senses. Uh, to be able to enjoy that, that beauty fully. Again, this is unmistakable in what he's talking about here and how it finds expression between the husband and wife. He wants to experience what his eyes have seen with his senses of touch and smell and taste. And we see that he will not go away disappointed when she takes up the dialogue in the second part of verse 9 of chapter 7. It goes, he says, your mouth is like the best wine, and she says it goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over lips and teeth. It's a mutual desire. It's not just him for her. It's also her for him. And she repeats for a third time her giving herself to him in verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Uh, The first time she said, I am my beloved's, 
It was to reassure him when she was sending him away and saying it's not yet the right time for love, but still assuring him that I am my beloved's. The second time was her declaration of submission to him after she had seen what it was to want him and need him and send him away and not be able to find him. I am my beloved's. Um, She says it now here again, and the order is still reversed as to what it was before. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me a reverse of what he had said. It's her loving submission reasserted again, and not just merely giving him her body, but herself fully and willingly and joyfully. But it's a wonderful addition that she makes here when she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Uh, The desire flows out of that mutual submission to they have one another. It's proof that any brokenness in their relationship has been repaired. Those things that they had needed to overcome have been healed. And maybe here we also hear an echo of repair, the repair of what was wrecked in the fall. Um, Your desire will be for your husband in a way that wanted to dominate, a way that was not healthy, not edifying for the relationship. And now here is a desire expressed. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I think it may be an echo of the, the right reordering of desires. That we don't, she's saying, we don't desire to dominate and rule one another. We want to love and cherish one another. And therefore, we are giving ourselves to one another and desiring one another. And so even in this natural love, it's a picture of God's restorative grace, his ability to shower grace upon his people and heal what's gone wrong in relationships. And then the rest of the passage really is about the realization of their mutual desire. Um, I remember hearing the story of someone who said, I heard a really brilliant wedding toast. And at the end of the wedding toast, the person quoted Lady Macbeth from Shakespeare. You might think, now why is Lady Macbeth appropriate for a wedding toast, uh, but it was the line, what is done cannot be undone, to bed, to bed, to bed. Um, That's fitting at the end of a wedding toast as a sort of comedy expression, and that's really what is happening here, to bed, to bed, to bed. That's what's going on as they realize their mutual expression together. After all the separation, all of the delay, all of the out-of-sync times, those desires have melted away. The two desires expressed earlier in the song come to fruition here. His desire had been to go away with her into the countryside when spring was in the air. And that was declined by her until the right time. And her desire was to have him come home with her to her mother's house, to be with her in the family home. But that time they were separated and her wish went unfulfilled while she was sick with love. But now here all of that earlier frustration and separation and distance are now overcome by what they will do together. The I and you's have been replaced by we and us as they're able to realize their desires for one another. And they venture out into the blooming springtime together. And now she can invite him to come home with her and, renews and, and returns and renews to that invitation 
in verses 11 and 12. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early into the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom, and there I will give you my love. Oh my, Grandma would say. Um, that's, right, that's what's going on here. It's a realization that now is finally the time for these desires that they've expressed to be realized, uh, for them to come together. Um, and where, and where the, this is leading is really hard to miss in all of that. Um, and as we think about what they're clearly talking about, we also don't want to miss the beauty of it either. This is what they've stored up for one another and saved for one another and waited for for one another. Right? To get to this point that verse 13 describes, where the mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Now there's a beauty to this, right? The old and new, the same old love coming to fresh new expression in the realization of their desires. And then they go back to the city. After being out together, that there's this picture of being in the countryside and enjoying one another and then having to go back kind of to real life with everybody else. Um, that's what is in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. And the downer that's expressed about being together in the city is that they have to observe the social customs. No PDAs are allowed. You know what a PDA is? Public display of affection, right? No public displays of affection in polite society back then. That's why there's this sort of strange expression. She says, I wish you were my brother because no one would bat an eye if I, if I embraced my brother. Um, she's saying she's sorry that she has to observe the local customs and not be able to express uh, how she wants to show her affection for her husband um, but that's quickly replaced by the delight of being able to bring him home to her family and to live there with him as husband and wife. Right? If you, if you were not yet married and went over to your fiancé's house when you're unmarried, the rules are very different for where you have to stay and what you're allowed to do before you get married and what, after you get married. And that's what she's sort of celebrating, that even though they have to observe the social customs of the city, there's something wonderful about being able to go home to her family as husband and wife and delight in coming to the home together and enjoying her relationship with her husband along with her family's blessing and approval. And before too long, they're once again in each other's arms. They may have to observe different customs in the city than in the country, but the love and the desire and the enjoyment of one another continues. And we have that familiar now repeated admonition in verse 4 of chapter 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Right? This has not been, you know, sort of it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. This is now being used to say it is the time. You shouldn't awaken love until it pleases. But the sort of joyful addendum seems to be, but when love pleases for the husband and wife, it has been worth the wait. It was worth storing up for and worth enjoying with one another. And in doing this, the kind of ideal picture of marriage is once again presented to us. And we're reminded again of what a great and generous creator God we serve. These are not things that we come up with, that we decide are good ideas or are just socially contracted customs 
that we've come up with. This is something that's been designed by God. This is something that he has put together. And when we think about this song and we think about how it celebrates what he's done, it should cause us to once again marvel that we have this kind of God who creates these kinds of things. Right? Even if you're not in a marriage, you can pr- appreciate that this is the kind of God we have who creates such a kind of family institution for the enjoyment of those who are involved um, and has filled us this world that he's made with such delights for us to enjoy, including physical intimacy between husband and wife. It's a good gift from a great God. And everything about the creation, as we've said before, that testifies to the largesse of our God is further reason to give him glory. We don't have a God who made a black and white utilitarian world, who says, I'm just going to give you what you need. Um, But what does he fill this world with? He fills it with beauty and with light and with color and with music. It's all a testimony to his greatness. And love and marriage is a testimony to his greatness, a testimony to his generosity to us. And when we think about the great gift of these things and we think about how good God made them, We can be sad when the pull to desire and dominate rather than to love and cherish causes difficulty and brokenness in our relationships. What God has made so good, sin has such a capability to wreck and ruin, um, to bring low these things that God made, to disorder our desires, and where there should be loving and cherishing to create a desire to dominate or desires that we follow without thinking about the consequences. But thanks be to God for the power of Christ to repair broken relationships, to counter that pull of sin, which is too much for us, by the power of the Spirit, who has no trouble with sin. Every morning when we go through confessing our faith, even when the pastor forgets that we need to all silently confess our sins, uh, we we can be burdened with the weight of the things that we deal with. And maybe we find ourselves week after week confessing the same kinds of things that we felt we've fallen into and that we've gone through the sad process of pleading with God to give us relief and then find ourselves back doing the same things again. And we can recognize our own powerlessness in the face of sin. And that's why it's so important for us to know that in the struggle for sin and against sin, there is the power of God to bear on these things for us. These things that are too powerful for us. The pull of sin that we could not hope to help to avoid um, is not too much for the Holy Spirit. And God has given us a helper. That Christ ascended into heaven that he might help us at the right hand of the Father. And has sent his spirit to us that he might be in us and dwell with us and help us. That we are helped. And so whether it's love and marriage or any other problem in the Christian life, we should never despair. Because when we think that the pull of sin is too much for us, we've not been left alone. We've been given help by our God. Who has the power to recreate 
and to fix what's broken and to give us repair and restoration. And we should never forget to give thanks to God that he has sent us a Savior with that power to repair broken relationships, to build us up in love and devotion to one another. And ultimately, that all comes to us as we began to say at the beginning. Because we have a Savior who loves and cherishes His church. Um, He helps us because He loves us. And whereas one of the first disorderings that happened in the fall was that the first bridegroom, Adam, blamed his bride for his sin and condemned himself and her. The second and final Adam claims the sin of his bride as his own, even though he's sinless, and gives his life for her that she might live together with him. That's really the story. It's a story of love, the Lord laying down his life on the cross and taking it up again for his people so that we would live with him in blessedness forever. And so we can remember, too, that we have been loved and cherished by our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it should call us to then show forth our gratitude for being loved by him in our own loving submission to the Lord. May he give us the grace to help us in our natural relationships and in our spiritual relationship with him. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that We love this picture of the perfection of marriage, what it is at its best when two people love and cherish one another and enjoy one another, and we see how much the pull of sin is towards the desire to dominate. And Lord, we pray that where we have fallen prey to unholy competition rather than holy cooperation, that you would forgive us, that you would help us, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, give us the grace and help to resist that pull and to love and to cherish. And as we see in pictures of marriage, a picture of how Christ loves his church, we are once again uh, brought to such a degree of gratitude to you for sending a Savior who loves us so well and who serves us so self-sacrificially in order that we might live and live in blessedness with him forever. We thank you for the gift of such a Savior. We pray that you would Help us to meditate often on his love so that it might spur us on to gratitude for what he's done and that we might show forth our gratitude by loving you and loving our neighbors as we ought. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.